We're continuing our series as we come to God's Word now out of Mark, which we've entitled Just Jesus. That's what life has to reduce down to for us, just Him. Next week, Pastor Don, who just was up here, will be speaking out of Mark chapter 13, where Jesus talks about His second coming in the end times. That's going to be a fascinating message. But we're still, like last week, we're still going to be in Mark 11 today. And I'd like to talk about... um, going from figs to freedom. Now, years ago, I gave up trying to be clever with sermon titles. I decided, you know, I don't do this for me anyway, so I want to see you formed around the Word of God. And so usually my sermon title is, is the core of the main thing I'm trying to say that day out of God's Word. But I broke that rule today. I couldn't resist it from figs to freedom, even though you have no clue what that means. Uh, sorry about that, but we're going to go on that journey today. And kind of between frigs and freedom, we're going to encounter something that's very perplexing to us, that perplexes me on almost a daily basis, and then something that's very painful for most of us. Jesus will hit on both of those to get us from figs to freedom. So here's how it starts. It is the last week of Jesus' life. It's the last week of Jesus' life. It's Monday morning, actually. And uh, Jesus has been staying at a little place called Bethany. It's at the top of the Mount of Olives, sort of on the other side of the mount that faces Jerusalem. So he'd come over the top of the Mount of Olives. He'd see Jerusalem in front of him. And he, on this Monday morning, is on his way to the temple to do what we looked at last week. He's going to enter the outer court of the Gentiles. He's going to start kicking over tables, damaging furniture, yelling at people, and trying to declare, no, these courts are supposed to be places where the Gentiles, where the non-Jews can come and worship. And we looked at all that last week. So he's on his way to do that. And as he's coming down the Mount of Olives, he, Mark tells us he, he is hungry. He's hungry. And uh, he sees a fig tree. Interestingly enough, Mark also says that it's not the season for figs. But we're told that Jesus goes over to that tree anyway, looking for something to eat, knowing that there wouldn't be any figs there in the first place. He's, he's, he's about to not tell us a parable, but he's about to act out a parable. And he said to the tree, verse 14 of Mark 11, he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. No one even supposed to be fruit on it. But he said, may nobody ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. That's Mark's way of saying, we're going to come back to this. So he goes down, goes into the temple, clears the temple, everything we looked at last week. And Verse 19 says, when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So he leaves uh, that Monday evening. Now, what's this all about? Saying to a fig tree, uh, may you never have fruit. Well, that was a living parable, an acted out parable, kind of illustrating what he's going to do in the temple when he kicks over the tables and preaches out of Jeremiah to them and preaches out of Isaiah to them. And, and he is basically saying, you know, that fig tree, 
is going to look like what your lives look like spiritually. You got all the religious stuff on the surface, but, but there's no fruit of godliness coming out of your life. So it's kind of a, 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 an acted out parable. And when, when it's all done, he goes back. The next morning, so we're Tuesday morning now, in the morning as they went along, they saw that fig tree. And it was withered from the roots. And remember the disciples, remember what he had said to the fig tree the day before? So Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. It's withered away. It's, it's gone. Jesus responds, and here's the perplexing piece. Jesus responds, have faith in God. Have faith in God. And he doesn't necessarily go the direction of the acted out parable and how it sets up what he did in the temple. Now, this next morning, he goes right to his disciples. He says, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this, not a fig tree, but a mountain, If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. It'll be done for them. If you literally say to a mountain, if you have faith, go and be transplanted into the ocean, it'll be done for you. He's talking about incredible power here. Um, It could be some scholars believe that Jesus just kind of kind of nodded his head to the south. If they were coming down the side of the Mount of Olives, I've been on the Mount of Olives, and when it's not too hazy, when it's a clear day, you can see what, what looks like a mountain in the middle of nowhere, way out there. And it turns out it's a man-made mountain. It was built by King Herod of the Christmas story. And it was a monument to his paranoia. It was a refuge that he could go to. He was so paranoid about his safety, he literally killed his own children if he thought that they were a threat to him. And he had built this. It's called the Herodium. It's still there. You can tour it, the ruins. And, and it could be that Jesus kind of nodded his head when he said, you know, if you say this mountain, be removed and be cast out the sea, it shall be done. He could have been saying, faith accesses a whole realm of authority and power that is so much greater than human power and human authority. And those Herods, they're going to die and they're going to be gone, but there is access by faith to a spiritual realm where literally anything is possible. And I personally don't know of any Christian that's made mountains move into the sea. It was a metaphor. It was Jesus saying, even the impossible is not impossible when you have faith. This is it. And this, every time I read this verse, this is what perplexes me. Because, um, because I've really tried that kind of faith and sometimes nothing's happened. And yet Jesus says it will happen. I mean, what on earth? is he saying? Well, first of all, this is review. I put a list about a year ago on the screen. This is roughly the same list, not exactly. And, and, and we were talking about an, unanswered prayer. And when it comes to that perplexing thing of an, unanswered prayer, I talked to somebody this week who has been, 
who's finally seeing a turnaround in his family after 25 or 30 years. And then I talked to two other people back there between services who were telling me about distinct answers to prayer just this week. I mean, without big time lags. I mean, how do we put all this together? Well, sometimes unanswered prayer is a complicated thing. It's a multidimensional thing. I mean... It could be a lack of faith. That's pretty clear from Matthew 13. It could be unconfessed sin, as Isaiah tells us in chapter 59. It could be self-serving motivations where where we're more concerned about our greeds than our needs. But it can also have to do something with God's will and the positioning of God's will. And maybe this isn't God's will at this moment or this way. I know some people have so insisted that they want something from God that actually the Lord gave it to them when it wasn't his will. And that story never ends well. (laughs) But sometimes we're just praying for things that aren't out of his will and thank God he doesn't give them to us. Sometimes it's spiritual warfare, like in Daniel, where every time you begin to pray, you are engaging in the spiritual realm. You are engaging spiritual conflict. And sometimes that, like, like Paul would say, you know, I wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered me. I mean, there are things in the spiritual realm that start moving when you pray. We don't always see all of that, and it means some things don't happen right away. Or sometimes it's just God's sovereign timing. Sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no, sometimes the answer is not yet. And, and, and so it's all really tough. Meanwhile, I'll talk to people who sometimes will say, Years ago, I prayed for my mother, and God didn't answer my prayer. And I've been angry with him ever since. And that would be understandable. But that's a very one-dimensional way of looking at answered prayer. And it's not what Jesus is talking about here. He is rather saying, faith accesses you to something that will someday topple human authorities and is greater than what human energy and ingenuity brings to the solution. You access the power of God by faith that will win out in the end in our world. And so you, you, you are accessing that and you are engaging those spiritual powers, but it's not like that's a guarantee that I pray for my mother today and she's healed tomorrow. And if she's not, I'm going to be angry with God for the rest of my life. That, that is too one-dimensional for this. Because why prayer may be answered in the short term or not, it, it, it is a multidimensional reality. What we do is we stand the ground that we sang this morning. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in God the Holy Spirit, the three in one. There is a dimension that he exists in that I access by faith. And that dimension makes nothing in the human dimension impossible. And so, here's Jesus' call to us. And it's going to be twofold. It's going to be two things. And this first one is the one that deals with our perplexity before he gets to our pain. Just the perplexity of of answered prayer or unanswered prayer. And Jesus, in the end, calls us to rise to the place of faith. I just want to urge you today, no matter what 
you think God's track record may have been in your life or not been when it comes to answer prayer, I want you to rise to faith. That's always the default position. No matter what I see, I'm still going to trust him. And so you rise to faith. That's why in the next verse, after saying mountains will move, therefore I tell you whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, there's three tenses here. Uh, First of all, present tense, whatever right now you're asking for in prayer. Then it goes past tense. Believe that indeed you've received it already. Because we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then in future tense, it will be yours. I don't think it's right to reduce faith to a formula. This would be about the closest you'll ever see. Growing up, I used to hear people talk about praying through. Praying through. What do you mean to pray through? I've sometimes experienced this. I've just sought God and sought God. And then I've sensed in the heavenlies, he's already said yes and answered. I don't see the answer in my world yet, but I start living and acting like he's already heard and answered. There's been occasional times where I felt like the Lord said, I don't want to yet ask me anymore because I've given it to you. I just want you from now on to start thanking me that I've answered. And Jesus said, when you pray, present tense, believe that you have received it, past tense, and it will be yours, past, present, and future. And yet we're confronted, and this is why this verse often bothers us and the verse before when we read it. Well, God, you said that, but that doesn't seem to be my experience. I prayed for a lot of things I haven't seen the answer to yet. And yet I think Jesus is saying there is a faith attitude that I want you to rise to. There's a place of expectancy. I think positive thinking is too shallow a concept here. But at work, if you've been part of motivational meetings at work, you're probably told how you need to think positively, right? How... You know, if you're constantly thinking negative, like, I don't have what it takes, I'm going to this meeting, I don't think I'll have anything to say. I mean, no, they will say, you got to think positive. you got to think about the elements of your job. Think about them and, and, and picture yourself being successful in those things. Because we do know from brain physiology that we sort of become what we focus on mentally. And so you want to think positively. That's part of success, I guess. It's, it's, it's thinking positively. It's not fighting yourself all the time because it does affect your brain chemistry and it, and it helps you. you. You become what you pay attention to. You become somewhat what you tell yourself all the time. And so, and so there's a way in which we want to stay positive in, in a natural realm. But Jesus takes it to a whole different realm. He, he says, I want you just to rise to faith and I want you to live there. I want you to live as if I do hear your prayer, I give you the answer and you will receive it. That's the place I want you to live. And then, if it may not happen, just like you think it ought to happen, I want you to just continue to live in the place of expectancy. Now, I'm going to tell you two stories with two very different outcomes. Two men of God who ended up with very different outcomes in their life when it came to this. If you've ever read a book on preaching, you've maybe read a book by Haddon Robinson. And Robinson writes about his father, who for many years lived in New York City in Harlem 
And in that time, he lived in what they call Mousetown, which Reader's Digest called the most dangerous community in America. And true enough, as he got older, his father would, would be victimized by gangs. Um, and, and twice, he was really badly beaten up. Once, they actually threw him down two flights of stairs. And he, in his older years, survived it. The second time, a gang of guys just got a hold of him and just beat the daylights out of him. And one of the ongoing injuries he had from that was a hernia. He didn't know what a hernia was, but it was pretty traumatic for him. And he started praying for the Lord to heal him, but nothing happened. He was a man of God. He had childlike, simple faith. God healed me. So finally he wrote his son, Haddon, who lived in Dallas. And he, Haddon said, I got that letter in the morning, and I was on the plane to New York that afternoon. I got my dad. I brought him back. Uh, the surgeons in Dallas fixed the hernia and so he could start to recover. But, but listen to what he says. My father felt that somehow God had let him down. He had prayed for healing, and the healing had not occurred. So I tried to explain to my father that, you know, the hand of the physician was the hand of God. Um, but he shrugged all that off. It's like, you know, God used the doctors. We call this common grace. God used the doctors to help. But he just shrugged it off. And he says, the last eight years of my father's life were not good ones. Not only were these years a time of declining health, but he went through them with a diminishing faith. He could never get over that God had not answered his prayer to heal him. And they needed the doctors instead. And he died with less faith than he had years earlier. He lived his life. He ended his life with diminishing faith. Well, let me tell you another story. It's about a missionary by the name of Alan Gardiner. And he died in the middle, uh, he died at 57 years old in the mid-1800s. And at the time, he was a missionary on an island way at the southern tip of South America. And he had an incredibly hard life. He faced a lot of opposition, a lot of persecution. He was lonely, deprived, often hungry, and he finally, and sick. And this man of God who had given his life to reach others for Jesus died of disease and starvation. But when they found his body, they found a diary right beside his body. And they read the last entry in his diary. And they could tell that the last sentence was written with a really shaky hand. Like he was trying to at least make what he wrote at least barely legible as he was starving to death and afflicted with disease. And his last sentence was this. I am utterly overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. I read that years ago. Hit me between the eyes. I've never forgotten it. This man dying of starvation and disease, where it seems like no prayers were being answered, and he was giving his life to reach other people for Jesus. He couldn't get away from the sense of the goodness of God. When Jesus said, 
Whatever you pray, believe you have received it and it shall be given to you. I believe Jesus was doing an attitude set and he says, may you to your dying day, no matter what or does or doesn't happen to you within certain time frames, may you never lose a sense of the goodness of God and that he's for us and not against us. We just keep picking ourselves up. We just keep landing and standing our feet on the grounds of I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in God the Holy Spirit. There's something stubborn about faith. There's something like, God, I won't give up on you. And it sets our attitude. Not not that attitude of increasing disappointment with God, but that attitude of, I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. Pulled out a couple other favorite quotes of mine, like, um, like, um, you know, uh, the father of modern missions, William Carey, who served in India in the early 1800s. He's famous for saying, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And you read his life story, not everything went well in his life. But what a life attitude to live with because you believe you serve a God who hears you. So here it is. I'm going to expect. I'm going to live in expectancy that, that God's going to do great things. And as a result, I have the courage to try to do great things for him. Or D. Elton Trueblood, who, who wrote, faith is not belief without proof, but it's trust without reservation. I don't need necessarily the proof that you answer my prayer for my mother, but it's trust without reservation. I know who you are, Lord. I know you're faithful, you're good. I know you hear me. I know that in Christ, I am blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And come what may, I center my life, not in proof, I center my life in trust without reservation. And so we come back to what Jesus said. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, this is not easy. I've been a pastor for a lot of years. And without fail, every time I get to that verse in the book of Mark, it makes me wince. And I realize that maybe my faith really has to rise higher. And I realize that some of the things I'm asking for may not align with God's will, at least right now. But Jesus is saying, I want you to live with a constant expectation for my goodness to show up at any time in any way. Because you, when you pray with faith, you're navigating a realm that's beyond human authority. You are participating in the authority of heaven. And so keep rising in expectancy and faith. And then only one more thing. Jesus is going to visit one more subject just before he's done. And it's found in, it's just found in one more verse right at the end of this in the book of Mark. Because he causes, calls us not only to rise in faith, but then as we do so to release forgiveness to the people around us. And what he's going to do is, is take having faith and releasing forgiveness 
and he's going to cause them to join hands as a part of the whole equation of freedom. It's going to cause them to join hands. So just, it's not like we're changing the subject here, but we've just got to be fair to how far Jesus takes this. He said, when you pray, believe that you have received it and you will be given to you. But, he says in the next verse, but when you stand praying, and when you stand praying, and speaking of prayer, he said, and when you stand praying. Now, even more commonly than kneeling, people at this time would stand in prayer with their arms like up like this, like we in worship were doing today. He said, when you're standing in prayer and your arms are up as if reaching out to the Lord and you're asking in faith, he said, just, you just got to be mindful of this. If you hold anything against anyone, you need to forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. So when you're standing in prayer and you're asking and, and you're believing that God's goodness is already coming on your behalf, he said, make sure your heart is free from anger, bad anger, resentment, revenge towards other people so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Because if there is something that does choke our spiritual life, it's receiving forgiveness from God but not releasing it to others. And forgiveness, the lack of forgiveness, refusing to forgive somebody, well, they don't deserve it. Well, they didn't ask me for forgiveness. Well, what they did was too bad to forgive. Well, well, I don't think... I'm not going to forgive them because I don't think I could ever trust them again. Forgiving people and trusting them are two very, very different things. Years ago, I've forgiven some people who hurt me, and I still don't trust them to this day, to be honest. But it's got nothing to do with that. You say, what's really going on in your heart towards other people? As you try to walk in my forgiveness to you so that I hear your prayers because you're forgiven. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Bear with each other. Uh, Bear with each other. Wow. That'll make you say ouch, too. (laughs) I mean, put up with those turkeys around you. But it's even more than that. I mean, he's stepping into our pain. The people who have hurt you. He's stepping right into our, not just our perplexity about unanswered prayer, but our pain when people have just done things to us or not done what they should have done for us. He said, you got to bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. And then why does Paul do this? Like, why does he have to add that next sentence? (laughs) Like, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Because I'd rather forgive people on my terms. You mean, i got to forgive like so completely in the way you forgave me? Because God's not up there saying, I think what you did is too bad to forgive. Mm -mm. He didn't say, well, if I forgive you, um, maybe I'm saying what you did wasn't that bad. Eh, He knows how bad what I did was. And he wasn't saying... You know, because I've forgiven you, I now trust you. No. God forgives us and spends us the rest of our life cleaning us up and trying to build some character in us and trustworthiness. He just flat out forgave you and me. 
You can fight it. You can argue against it. Unconditional love is a category most of us don't have to put this kind of thing into. But it's there. Jesus, because he took our sin on the cross and shed his blood to make us clean, Jesus flat out forgave you no matter how bad anything you have done. And so he says, so just like the Lord forgave you, Jesus said when you stand praying and you're just trusting God, you may have to do some heart homework here that, that if, you, if you're still out for revenge, if you're still out to get even, if you've not forgiven people, you've got to let it go and put it into God's hands. And you know, there's something immensely freeing about this. When you have faith and you live in expectation ongoingly, not growing disappointment in God, you're living in ongoing expectation of his goodness stepping in. And at the same time, you have forgiven people for the pain they've inflicted in your life. You live free. I love what William Clausen said. Forgiveness denies the destructive elements of our past from having power over our present. Forgiveness defies what somebody else has or hasn't done for you and lets you go free. It says, I'm no longer... My behaviors, my attitudes are no longer determined. I know trauma, I know deep pain takes a while to get over. It's a complicated issue, but it starts with forgiveness because forgiveness is an act of defiance. What somebody else does or doesn't do no longer controls my identity or my choices. It denies the power of that action in the past from having power over my present. And you go free. Meanwhile, you leave it up to God to get even. Do not, Romans 12, 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Sometimes I felt like, God, if I forgive that person, I'm just letting him off the hook. And God says, no, you're letting them off your hook and you're putting them on my hook. It's mine to repay, not you. Forgiving is giving up the right to repay and defying the power of those actions or inactions over your present. And it brings you to the same thing as faith does in living in expectation of God's grace. It brings you to freedom. And here Jesus, Jesus joins having faith in God that can move mountains with keeping your spirit clear towards other people. Letting him go, walk free of it. Put him in God's hands. And, um, and that really is the journey. It started with figs, right? And it goes to rising to faith and then releasing forgiveness and then receiving freely. I don't think I've heard one amen all morning. <laughs> and I don't blame you for that. This is tough stuff. But Jesus wants us to work through it with him. And don't beat yourself up because this is tough stuff. But Jesus is saying, you can be free. What do you say in John 10? The thief comes to steal, rob, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life 
and have it to the whether God seemed to answer the prayer for your mom or not. Jesus said, pray. Believe you've received it. Live in anticipation of my goodness to you and keep your heart clean towards the people around you. And you can live freely to the full.